and I sat down, or he came to my office, and basically all good ideas come when he comes to my office, just, just saying. But we said with, with the different things going on in our culture today, it would be great to have a series where we can just dig into some of the political issues going on. Not that we're going to fix America or, you know, understand all the complexities of what's going on, but just to have a conversation, start a discussion about how we as Christians in the, in the 21st century can navigate this part of our culture. And so um, just as we kind of introduce the series, I mean, last week Paul, um, Ben said that uh, we're going to tell you who to vote for at the end. That is not true. Uh, we're not going to do that. Um, in fact, I'm going to lay some ground rules to, t- to let you know what's on the table and what's fair game for this series. And maybe the best way to tell you what this series is about is to tell you what it's not about. So here's rule number one for this series. This series is not about us using the Bible to try to figure out who's right and who's wrong. Because no matter where you stand politically, you can use something in the Bible to justify where you stand. For example, when Jesus started calling his disciples and said, come follow me, he came to this guy named Matthew and said, come be my disciple. Um, you can answer out loud here. What was Matthew's job before he was a disciple? Tax collector. And if you know the old King James, what's another word for tax collector? This, this is really hard. Who knows it? Who knows it? Someone knows where I'm going with this. Publican. <laughs> so Jesus was after the publicans. He wanted the Republicans on his side. And so there you have it. You know, you know who Jesus stands for. Uh, and, and there's another place where Jesus said, I did not come to save the righteous. I came to save the sinners. And so the people on the right, they're all right, right? And the people on the left, they need the help. So if you're a Republican, you're like, oh, yeah, Jesus is totally on my side. But if you're a Democrat, you've got to be sitting back and thinking, what in the world? Hold on here. Jesus was a health care dispensing machine. <laughs> Free health care for everyone. We've got a plan for that. And so you've got to be thinking, oh, of course, Jesus was a Democrat. And then all the while, the Libertarians are sitting off to the side just shaking their heads. The truth shall set you Free. We need to be free from government, free from regulation, free as possible. And so the libertarians are saying he's on our side. So the point is you can basically look at any part in the Bible and find something to agree with your stance. So this isn't about using the Bible to figure out who's right and who's wrong. And kind of related to that, this is not a series, and this is kind of a rule that Ben and I talked about, we're not going to mention any names of political candidates. We don't need to. This isn't a series about them. This isn't a discussion about them. In fact, uh, one of the things we'd love for this series to be is we want it to be relevant to people 12 years from now as much as it's relevant today. And so this isn't a series. We're not even going to mention political candidate names. (laughs) And someone at the first service, they're like, I I just remember this. They're like, hey, thanks for um, addressing the elephant in the room. And they just said, I mean, they didn't mean anything. And I'm like, what, what about the donkey in the room? Can we? <laughs> so this isn't a series about issues. It isn't a series, you know, we're not even going to address specific issues and say, well, this is why you should do this or that. Um, this is basically a series just to step back and look at God and country. What does it mean to be for God? What does it mean to be for the people in our country? So God and country, we just want to look at what our role is as Christians, as citizens. And hey, if you're a politician, I hope there's something that we can have for you in this this series too. But basically just to step back and look at some big issues. So that said, that's just the introduction to the series. 
Uh, that said, to get ready for this message today, I needed to do some, some scientific research. And part of that was because I know that political issues in America and racial tensions in America, there's a lot of complexities. So I'm like, okay, I need to do some scientific research on this. So I went to Facebook. <laughs> and then I listened to some political talk radio. <laughs> I got some booze from that in the first service. Like, woo, what? Um, Here's something that I learned, not learned, it kind of reinforced something along the way. Basically, everything I read, everything I listened to, there was this fear, there was this urgency, and the message that was cast time and time and time again in different forms and different ways was basically, it's, it's something I agree with, people need to know what's at stake. And, and they cited issues. They cited health care, economy, national security, you know, all these different issues. People need to know what's at stake. For different reasons, I couldn't agree more. We need to know what's at stake, not just in an election cycle or an election month, but all the time. Uh, fill in number one if you're taking notes. Is this fill in one? Yeah, fill in one. People need to know what's at stake. And this, that's really the basic point of today's message. What's really at stake when it comes to politics? In just a second, we're going to um, be opening up a letter written in the first century. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to some Christians in Corinth. And of all the places to look, he's going to talk to them about what kind of, eat, what kind of meat they can eat. And it's actually going to match with what we're talking about today. But before we get into that, there's, it, it's important, I think, to be able to understand why are, there so much, why are there so many different tensions in America? What is it that's polarizing us? Why is right and left and middle and all around, why is there so much anger and hostility and, you know, what's going on? Now, in, in my research, not on Facebook, but in my research, I did find some, some other ways to kind of understand this. And this is one way to understand why there's so much tension in America. I'm sure there's other ways out there, and you could probably teach me better ways. But this was simple enough for my mind. Um, and it all comes back to this word conscience. It's all centered on this word conscience. And, and you've probably heard conscience is that voice in your head that tells you right from wrong. That's kind of a simple way to think about it. There's another way to think of conscience, too, or a more hands-on way. A conscience is kind of like a tether or a band that connects your values like honor or trustworthiness or love or respect. Those are values. It tethers your values to your behavior. So, for example, if one of your values is to be um, honorable or to, to be trustworthy, if your behavior is to lie you're moving away from that value and it's causing tension in your conscience and it doesn't feel good. A conscience is simply something that tethers your values to your behavior. Now, what can happen with a conscience? Well, you can change your behavior often enough that sometimes your value starts to move in its direction and your values can change. And same on the other hand, you can say, well, this is going to be my value, so I'm going to change my behavior. And so your value can be the catalyst for change, But simply said, a conscience can be like the band that connects your values to your behavior. Um, there's also this thing, and this is where we're going to, this is how it applies on a bigger scale. There's also this thing called a collective conscience. 
Like when you put a bunch of people together in a group or in an organization, they form their own conscience that governs things. You knew this growing up. Your family of origin had a collective conscience. Uh, One thing about my family of origin is that every night before we ate, we would always have a prayer together. So we'd say the table prayers together, and then after the prayers, we knew it was okay to start eating. And so that was ingrained in me from, from, from very young. There's this behavior of praying, and I knew that there was this core value of being thankful for our food and all that stuff. And so that's just the cycle we got into. So we pray before we eat. Well, guess what happened to poor Matthew the first time he went off to his friend's house to eat supper, and they didn't pray before they ate. Like, they just start eating, and I'm like, oh my goodness, the wrath of God is going to come upon us. Can I, and I sat there for a minute like, can I eat this food? And it wasn't a matter of right and wrong. I mean, it's not like God said, thou shalt pray before thou eatest. You know, God doesn't give us any command like that. It's just a matter of conscience. It bothered my value. And, and that's also what happens to us on a national scale. And by the way, in your, in your family of origin, when your value or when your behavior gets out of line with the value, guess what happens? Rules, 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 curfews, until you're brought back into conformity of the conscience, right? And, until everything is good again. And the teens are like, this is, I get it now. <laughs> this makes sense. Um, so this is also true on a national scale. We have a collective conscience as a nation. Every nation does. That's why when you go to different nations and you're like, this feels weird or something's not right, that's because they have different values and different behaviors. And you're, it's kind of stretching your conscience. It's called culture shock. But in our country, and don't read anything into this, this is just an observation about how we are the way we are. In our country, when it was founded by our founding fathers, our collective conscience was very, very clear. If you look at the Declaration of Independence, it's basically a declaration of conscience where we are one nation based on, this is my words, one nation under God. Um, we hold these truths to be self-evident that we are, you know, we have these rights from our creator. And basically, summary is each person is held accountable to God. And that's kind of the way, and I'm not saying our founding fathers were all Christian or that they all had the same idea of God. We're not going there. I'm just saying that we as a nation, at, uh, when we were born, we had this general idea that, okay, each of us individually is held accountable to God. We are one nation under God. And so when you have a lot of people, a majority of the population, living with that collective conscience, the behavior will all line up. But what happens when you start adding new cultures, when you start growing, when suddenly the value isn't so clear anymore? You see, you fast forward to today to see that there's a lot of different values that we're working with. And therefore, the behavior is stretching us, and we want to do anything we can to make our country conform to our value. Uh, what happened in the Civil War? There's this value. All life is, is important. All life is a gift from God. Well, why are some lives not as important as others? And the whole slavery thing came in. And there was such a tension that it erupted. And you see the same thing on uh, smaller scales, thankfully, today where there's different values, different ideas, this is important, this is important, and when it's not lining up, there becomes all this tension. So that's one way to understand, well, why is there so much tension going on in politics today or even in our society? And it all goes back to conscience. We have different values that are, that are fighting, competing for different behaviors. And what all of us will... 
is a candidate that stands for our values. But when we can't find that, what we resort to is we try to destroy the other candidate and try to make ourselves happy with the one. And I think that's where a lot of us are today. Uh, Next week, Ben's going to fix all that, by the way. But uh, today, this week, I want to focus more on on smaller scale, what should should happen when we notice that maybe there's this uh, conflict of conscience between them and us. And I'll give you a hint. The answer to this is not to make more rules and regulations and laws to make them conform to our values it's something different. And if you want to see something really scary, just um, on your way home today, do a Google search. How many federal laws do we have? And the short answer is nobody knows. Uh, our, our values are so up for grabs that we have law after law after law to try to bring some conformity to our standards. So what we're going to do is we're going to see on a smaller scale how do we act when our, our, our consciences cl- conflict with other people. And we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians uh, Something interesting is that Paul knew all the, these complexities in the first century. <laughs> you know, as, as much as we think, of oh, this is completely chaotic, all this confusion, it's actually a pretty simple concept that Paul addressed in the first century. And we're going to turn to a, a, a church in Corinth, and basically this church was being torn apart because their consciences, both individually and collectively, were being stretched so thin. So here's how it starts. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, how do we address this conflict of conscience? So Paul starts by quoting what seems to be this church's motto. Their motto was, I have the right to do anything. Or if you know a different translation, it says, everything's permanent. So it seems like this congregation, that, that was just their driving factor. Like, well, what do we do here? Well, their, their deciding factor was, well, we can do anything we want. So Paul's quoting them. You say, well, everything, or you have the right to do anything, but Paul redirects them. He says, but not everything is necessarily beneficial. He quotes them again. Well, I have the right to do anything, you say. Paul redirects, but not everything is constructive. Now, now you might wonder, well, why are they saying that to begin with? Like, do they really have the right to do anything? Well, here's what Paul had taught them. Paul had taught them they have the right to do anything. Because when Jesus died on the cross, it put everyone under him on the same level. Like those who have faith in Jesus are all on the same level. doesn't matter if they're Jews or Greeks or Gentiles or male or female, free or slaves. They're all the same in Christ. value that everyone is forgiven. And therefore, those with that value are all going to be lined up in behavior. That's why a key theme in the New Testament, you're free. There's no laws, no regulations. All you do is focus on Jesus. And the only law standing is to love God and love your neighbor. There's no laws. You're free. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to do all this stuff. You're free. So they said, well, we have the right to do anything. And Paul's like, yeah, but we need a little bit. Not everything is going to be beneficial. Um, He goes on, verse 24. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And so this is basically just a three-sentence sermon up to this point where Paul is saying, okay, we need to think about this. Your driving principle shouldn't be, I'm free to do anything. This should be your driving principle. This should be your core value, that we should seek the good of others. Now, he's going to give an application to this. He's going to ask the question, well, what in real life? 
And he gave an application that would have fit perfectly in with this congregation back in the first century, and we're going to find some amazing application for us today. So verse 25 here. Paul said this, Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. How many of you are going to Von Hansen's today? You love that place? It's the meat, yeah. If you haven't been there, you need to at least walk into this, this meat market, uh, Von Hansen's. It's like heaven. Like I go there once a year. That's all I can afford, but it's this great place. <laughs> It says, you can, Paul said, you can eat anything at the meat market, and this isn't like, okay, you can indulge yourself, or this isn't a diet thing, like have all the fatty food you want. That's not the point. Uh, basically, for them back then, the meat market would have meant something a little bit different. You see, they, they had their temples in Corinth, and, and for their, their sacrifices, let's say they would take a cow, and they would sacrifice part of it to their God, and then the rest of it they would sell at the meat market for a profit. So some Christians would come in and say, well, well, hold on a minute. The meat that you're buying, that's, that's like been sacrificed to an idol. You can't eat that. But Paul is giving them a principle here. He says, you can eat it. It's okay to eat that meat at the market because there's no other God out there. It's not like there's an actual idol that you're you know, having participation with. He, he establishes a principle. He says, the earth is the Lord's. You know that meat at the market? That's the Lord's meat. It comes from him. You can enjoy it. It belongs to him. And so this is important. So, so Paul is saying, well, there's this behavior. There's, there's this eating meat. Do we eat it or not? And Paul said, here's the core value. Everything belongs to God. And what's really important is, and this is kind of a takeaway for us, your core values, even based on what you think or what you've concluded, or even just, oh, my gut says this, your core values should be based on what God says. And so you go back to that. Well, Paul said, you can have a good conscience about eating this meat if you just do some research, if you think about it, and you remember, the earth is the Lord's, and you can eat that meat with thanksgiving, with thankfulness for what it is. Here's the dangerous part. Here's the opposite. The dangerous part is when someone would go up to you, oh my goodness, you're eating meat from the market? Well, you must be this kind of person. You must be someone who doesn't love God. And the danger is to judge someone's values based on their behavior. Um, fill in number two. This is going to be so hard for us this, this election cycle. Don't judge someone's values on the basis of their behavior. Don't assume you know what's going on on the inside because you see what's leaving on the outside. Oh, that's such a dangerous thing. And we need to do this individually with people that we know, people we interact with. If they, um, open the, if they start talking to us and they say, well, I'm on this side of the aisle, and you're like, oh, <laughs> you're one of them. Well, you go off and have your little, you know, whatever. It's so easy just to judge someone's values because we, we, we look at their behavior. And can I tell you something as your pastor? This to political candidates too. And this is a tricky middle ground because on the one hand, we need to vet people in public office and we need to look at their values and their behaviors and and, we need to know who's going to be in charge. But at the same time, we can't complicate or we can't compromise this principle. We can't just go judging their values based on their behaviors. Or this is even worse. We shouldn't judge someone's values based on a report of their behavior. Um, And I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) 
Uh, and, and again, if, if you're in a growth group this week, that'll be one of the questions. Like, how do you vet a candidate, but at the same time not be judgmental about their core values? And I'm not going to try to fix it. You guys can figure that out, and Ben can fix it next week. We're going to go on um, here, uh, verse 27. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, so he's kind of changing the, the what if. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go eat with them, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. It's not like you have to pretend to be someone else to try to please that person. Here's the worst thing that could happen. You're going to go to their house and you're going to be eating that meat and they're going to say, well, wait a minute, aren't you a Christian? How can you eat this meat? And you know what you're going to have an opportunity to do? Explain your behavior because of your core value. Well, I believe that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I believe there's only one that I've been bought with his blood and that I can honor him and thank him for this meat because it's his slab of meat and I'm going to eat it and enjoy it. So at the very worst, this will give you an opportunity to share the reason for your behavior. But he goes on. It gets a little more complicated. But if someone says to you, wait, 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 this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. And, and then, well, why, Paul? Why should I not eat it? He says, because for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience, out of love for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. Now, this, this, is, this is really important. He says, basically, that you have your value that you can eat this meat and it's not going to bother you. Your conscience isn't bothered. But here's what's important. Sometimes there's a higher value to consider. Sometimes there's something more important that takes precedent. Behavior might also be changed. Well, what is it that's more important than eating meat out of love for the other person? He says, do that for the sake of um, the, the one who told you and also for the sake of conscience. And he, he has to kind of clarify. It's not your conscience that's at stake. Verse 29. <clears throat> he said, I'm referring to the other person's conscience not yours. So you, you're stretching their conscience comfortable based on something you do. Um, and so it's out of consideration for those. And then he kind of plays along. For why would it be my freedom being judged by another's conscience? Their values don't dictate my behavior. Uh, verse, verse 30. If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, I know that this is God's meat. Why am I then, why would I then be denounced because of something I thank God for? So this should in no way trouble my conscience, but I'm called to a different value of loving one. And we're going to apply this to our situation in just a second. Uh, Here's a summary statement from Paul, verse 31. So, so, summary. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do your homework. Know why it is you do what you do. Whether it's eating meat sold in the market, know that the earth is the Lord's, everything in it. Whatever you're going to be doing, have thankfulness to God. Know why you're doing it. So that when someone comes up to you and says, well, why are you doing that? You have a reason to share the hope that you have. Verse 32, it gets trickier. Do not cause anyone to stumble. In case you don't know who anyone is, he says whether Jews, so like religious people who are a little different, who have a different set of standards, don't cause them to stumble. Don't, don't uh, cause tension for their conscience. He says, or Greeks just are basically pagans who don't know who God is or maybe don't even believe in him. 
or even the church of God, people within the church, your brothers and sisters, don't cause them to stumble either. And then he cites himself as an example. He says, even, I've done this, even as I try to please or, another way to think of that, try to accommodate everyone in every way. Now, how can you accommodate Jews? How can you accommodate Greeks? How can you accommodate of God? How can you please them in every way? Well, here's the hard part. This is so hard, and if I could do this, like, I'd be in heaven. Like, I'd be perfect, and all of us would be. But here's, here's the principle that God lays before us. We need to know their point of view. We need to know where they stand. We need to know what their values are and not just their behaviors. We can't just judge their values. We need to get to know them. Because here's kind of the scary uh, statement here. This is fill-in number three. You cannot love someone whose perspective you refuse to understand. It's not like you have to agree with them, and it's not like you have to have the same perspective, but if you refuse to understand their perspective, you cannot love them. I, uh, in part of my scientific research, listening to talk radio, there's a politician saying how they were going door to door, and they had a very pleasant conversation with one person for about half an hour, just standing at the doorstep. And then the person in the house asked the question, well, which, are you, you're, you're this party, right? Or, you know, they basically asked, well, what party are you? And the person said, well, I'm affiliated with this party. And at that, they just shut the door. <laughs> See, if, if you can't, at least try to understand their perspective. It's going to be impossible for you to go. Um, Here's another way to think of it. I assume that most of you have watched professional golf at least on one lazy Sunday afternoon, right? So you you kind of know how professional golf goes. And some of you are like, yep, that's like nap time for me. Like I turn on golf and just lights out. But uh, when you watch the professional golfers, when they get to the green and their ball is on the green, they always do this thing where they they get behind their ball and there's the cup and they're they're, they're, they're lining it up. But they don't just do that. What golfers do, at least professional ones, they always do this long round, right? And they go behind the hole on the other side, and they they look at things from the completely opposite perspective. And so they know the best approach and the best way to get there. Now, if I try doing that on the golf course, people yell at me. They're like, Matt, you're going to miss it anyway. Just try to get close. Just get it close. But professional golfers know the importance of seeing things from the other perspective. They take the long walk around. And I'm just going to tell you that's what we need to do. If there's, if there's a tension between us and someone else, if there's a confidence, we need to take that long walk around to see things from their perspective, at least to understand why they do what they do. And the reason why that's so important is because of the last verse that Paul brings up here. He says, the reason I'm doing this is not for my own good. This isn't for me to win. This isn't for me to get you know, a vote or to get them on my side. I'm doing this for the good of many the good of others, for the end result that they are. See, this is a world where people need to be saved. And, and so one day God looked down at me, at Matt, and he said, wow, you're messed up. Wow, how am I going to approach this? And God could have stood back at a distance and said, you know what, Matt and all humanity, um, I'm just going to kind of take my best shot just to try to fix whatever's wrong with you. And, and whatever happens, happens. But the way God addressed our mess was back at a distance to try to, you know, swing at it. But God took the long, long, long walk around 
to see things in our perspective and also to be who we were. To stand and to be that person we couldn't be. To love others, to not assume what we, we knew what was in their hearts, but God came and he made that long walk so that we may be saved. What this is really all about. Uh, fill in number four. We'll get, we'll get wrapped up here. What my fear is that when, and I'm just going to make a blanket observation, you see a lot of stuff on social media, you see a lot of stuff shared here and there, and I'm, I'm not making any personal statements or observations. What I've observed is that when people get political in that kind of arena, it often communicates that I'm worth nothing more than a vote to them. That this is their cause, that the only thing that... And, and it's not necessarily true. I know there's different motivations. I'm just saying this is a tricky thing. That's, that's basically all I'm saying. It's a really tricky thing to take a political stand and to be really vocal about it and not send this message. See, what we know is that people are a lot more valuable than a vote. That's what God has made absolutely clear. People are so much more valuable than a vote. This is about eternity. Now, that doesn't... Again, the opposite. That doesn't mean you should be apolitical, that you should abandon politics and you know, go independent or whatever that means. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is this is a delicate balance of approaching people and putting people before politics. People are worth much more than a vote. And so as we try to convey our concerns, our, our, our wishes, our desires for this country, we have to have that. People go before politics. Uh, so here's uh, one last quick thing here. Um, as you engage people, maybe you're going to find that there's disagreements. Here's the thing. You may disagree about what's most important, about what's most important for people. Um, in other words, you might be concerned about people on this side of the line. They might be concerned about people on the other side of the line. But that doesn't mean they hate the people on your side of the line. It just means that this is more important to them. You see, about what's most important for people. That's okay. And I think this is where we can kind of take this with most people we know. Uh, next point here. But you probably are going to find that when you take the long walk around, you agree that people are what's most important. That's really the point of, of uh, part number one in this series here. Put people before politics. People are what's most important. They're more valuable than a vote. And we need to be able to take the long walk around to, to just their perspective and know that uh, 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 they're probably as interested in helping people as, as you might be. So there's going to be a lot of great discussion. If you have a growth group this week, I'm sorry for the facilitators <laughs> of these groups because um, um, it's going to be, uh, I'm not sorry, um, it's going to be great. Um, just navigate this carefully. It's okay to, to disagree about what's best for people. Let's just agree that uh, people are what's most important. Next week, um, basically, if you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm afraid of what happens if this candidate is in office, or I'm afraid of what happens if this candidate's in office, I'm afraid of what's going to happen next. If, if fear is in your heart, I want you to come back next week because Ben's going to fix all that as we uh, conclude the series uh, for God and country. Let me close us with a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, it's a time of a lot of uh, complicated political and racial unrest in this country, my prayer is that would empower us, empower your church across this world to be able to take a stand on what's truly important. 
And at times, it's, it's easy for, for me, it's easy for us to get distracted by issues and, and things that we think will change our lives for the worse or for the better. Uh, keep us grounded, first and foremost, that people are what matter the most. And help us to, to be able to have healthy discussion around the fact that we might disagree on what's best for important for people. But help us, at the end of the day, to see both for what you say and what you demonstrated in Christ, that people are what's most important. I ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue here uh, by gathering an offering, which is our first fruits back to God, but it's obviously also a support of our ministry here at Bethlehem. And so if you're a guest, and if you're not quite ready uh, to do that, that we totally get it. You no obligation to put anything in the machine. We're turning the cameras off, so nothing, you know, no, no one's looking at anything. Um, what I do ask, could you please take those uh, black connection books from the sides of each row and fill out some information so that we know who was with us today. Thanks. continue by remembering and commemorating what Jesus did the night before his death. Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Uh, it's here in this supper that Jesus offers his body and blood uh, for our forgiveness. A great way to celebrate our unity in faith as we do so. I invite you forward at the direction of our ushers. Um, as they uh, escort you forward or as they um, invite you forward, uh, we'll try to keep as many people in this middle aisle as possible um, just to feed into the next table. And as you come forward, try to fill out as much space as you can to keep things efficient. All right. Have, uh, I was going to say have a great day. Um, <laughs> have a great day too, but you can come forward at the direction of our ushers.
We'll close with a prayer. Uh, Dear Father in heaven, thank you for the word which we heard today, uh, where you assured us of our forgiveness and our identity as your children bought with the blood of Christ. And thank you for providing in this meal his body and blood to give us the forgiveness that we so desperately need and for allowing us to celebrate that unity that we have together. From this place, holding in our hearts both the forgiveness you gave and the willingness, the motivation to, to forgive those around us. Help us to be your people in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Great to see you all here today. If I've never met you before, I'd love to learn your name on the way out, or if you can find me in the atrium here, that'd be awesome. Um, Or if you just want to silently duck out, that's fine too. I won't judge you for it. Um, A few things before we leave. Uh, First of all, if you're a guy, this one's for you. In 30s, there's going to be a men's conference down in Rochester, and it's going to be awesome for guys of all ages, all backgrounds, if you're single, if you're married, whatever. Um, It's going to be a conference. Um, It's uh, called Stand Firm. If you want more information about what the conference is about, there's a poster on the right side of the Welcome Center. And if you'd like to go, we actually have a group of gentlemen who are going from Bethlehem down to Rochester. I know one of them is John Sackett. In fact, he's the contact guy. His phone number is right there in the bulletin. So if you want to do some prank tweak, you can do that too. Uh, but uh, he's the contact man if you'd like information about uh, carpooling or going down there together. Another thing is uh, this, this week, due to MEA week here in Minnesota, lovely week, uh, there's going to be no Axis middle school or Nexus high school stuff going on on Wednesday night. Um, so uh, none of that going on this Wednesday. Uh, the last thing is in, uh, let's see, a week from Tuesday, we're going to be launching growth group number 15 here at Bethlehem. Group 15 is going to be a, a little different. It's going to be an intergenerational group with young people, old people, all walks of life. Um, but what defines it is it's going to be in the South St. Paul area. And so if you live in that area or if, if uh, you want to be involved in a growth group up there, it's gonna, the first meeting is going to be on a Tuesday, but we're also going to see what works best for basically whoever wants to be a part of it. So your next step would be to contact me. Send me an email. That'd be preferable. Otherwise, I'll forget. But send me an email. I'll share with you more if you know when, where, what address, all that fun stuff. So that said, hey, thanks to our quartet for all your amazing work this weekend. And uh, um, God's blessings to you this week. Hope to see you next week when Ben fixes everything for us. (laughs) See ya.